clubhouse. Why wouldn't you just leave? Leave? Like it's easy? Like you just let her take the $194 she has and buy a bus ticket to Jersey? What, no. What would you do, sleep on the street? No, I'd find her anyway. And maybe she doesn't want to leave. Maybe this isn't about leaving at all. Maybe she wants him dead and he deserves it. How is that romantic? It's aspirational. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Welcome to Kevin Can Podcast Himself. Tonight we're talking about episode two of this brand new series. It was called New Tricks. It was written by Kevin Etten and Dana Ledoux Miller. It was directed, just like episode one, by Oz Rodriguez. Stick around to the end of our discussion of this episode because we actually have a great interview with the show's property master, uh, Joshua Meltzer. Josh's uh, 40-plus year career in Hollywood and television. He's worked on some of some iconic shows Growing Pains, Night Court, Dexter more recently. He is a prop master extraordinaire. And it was a great conversation with him uh, and a great look behind the scenes of making the show, uh, which he did. Hey, Caroline, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm excited to talk about this one. I feel like we really start getting into the the plot here, like the actual meat of the story. Yes, it was smart for the show to release this with the first one. These two together really set you up nicely. And obviously the end of this episode has that twist in the salon, which which will propel forward the rest of the series. Absolutely. So one of the things that we didn't talk too much about was the setting of the show and sort of the look of what what was this so reminiscent of? One of the fans in the Facebook group that we are running for the show did a great job of putting the all in the family living room on top of the Kevin McRoberts living room and the Kevin Allen Allison McRoberts living room. And it was startling seeing one on top of the other, how similar they really were. You know, we had talked, we had talked about the similarities between different sitcoms living rooms but the all in the family is a really good call on that there's so many ones that that come to mind i mean everyone loves raymond is another one too Mm -hmm. where it has that same exact staircase but man it really really yeah (laughs) archie bunker and kevin are sharing some dna yeah, which is funny. You know, when I listed off some famous bad husbands, uh, some Kevin-esque husbands, I actually left Archie off of that list because while he was uh, an all-around grump and he was certainly mean to Edith, I don't think Edith got the brunt of his ire in a sitcom husband, sitcom kind of wife way as much as he just yelled and complained and was nasty to everyone. So that was a little intentional on my part. Like I don't think of him as a as a typically bad sitcom husband, not in a buffoonish way, not in like a Ralph Cramden kind of way or a Kevin uh, James, you know, uh, a Doug from uh, uh, 
King of Queens kind of way. You know, I bet we would have to go back and watch now because I feel like I would only be using much younger Caroline eyes to to try to remember what I saw back in Archie Bunker days. So I would have to watch now and, and look at Edith in a different light, which is exactly what we're supposed to be doing with this with this show, right? So I would love to go back and give her the the Allison treatment and say, what what were we laughing at, and how is Edith treated? I, I have so many clear memories of of him telling Edith to stuff it, and you know, go in the kitchen there, Edith, and you know, and Archie, you know. But um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, you're right. I'm sure I haven't watched All in the Family in years, but my memory is is he was kind of an equal offender, an equally offensive person. But I'm, I'm sure when Edith would go into the kitchen after being harassed away by Archie, she probably like took some deep breaths holding onto the sides of the uh, sink. So guess what day it is today, Mike? Belichick hoodie day! Belichick hoodie day! If someone woke me up like that, I would totally freak out. <laughs> That whole opening, though, again, dead on sitcom parody. Like, that's a classic kind of opening because uh, 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 no grown man is jumping on their bed like like that. But Kevin is. I sure hope not. I don't know. Are they, Mike? That's the question mark. Is this real? Are there men jumping on the bed? I, I, I think in sitcoms there are. This is Ray getting excited because he gets to go golf and, and uh, you know, for that day and all the things that he would do when it was a golf day or something like that. Right. You know, that's true. Watching this and, and now I'm watching this show through this lens of, man, I, I, that's funny. But is it funny when you when you actually think about it? It's kind of dark. And, and so the episode starts and we've all seen the episode. We're not we're not here to recap for you. But uh, it starts with her having this dream about having killed her husband and kind of living in paradise and she's got her book and it, it seems very idyllic uh, she doesn't under she doesn't know yet how she killed him that's a plot hole in her story she gets woken up by kevin and his antics and she says something like i was having the nicest dream yeah. which which is a, which is a sitcom kind of line oh you woke me up but normally it's like you're with fabio or something right, right. This, is, this is kind of dark though she was having the nicest dream she was having a dream about having murdered her husband yeah it's it's going there right away <laughs> which i appreciate very much I'm ready. I, yeah. Uh, me too. Me too. It's just an interesting, like, I like that the show is not letting up on this theme of think about what you're laughing at. Think about when, when we kick the laugh track in until you laugh along because that's what you're trained to do. Think about what you're laughing at. You know, it, she was having the nicest dream. Really dark. <laughs> Real dark. Uh, something that struck me early on. And again, this is just part of living with someone who doesn't respect things and, and the maintaining of a house and keeping it orderly and doesn't look like a pigsty. Uh, Allison has this great moment where the laundry gets knocked over and then she she kind of hops away from it and then she comes back in the frame and she picks it up and puts it in the laundry basket. I really identified with her in that moment. Uh, <laughs> I just, I wouldn't be able to leave that. And it would drive me crazy that someone else had like walked by there and like intentionally like stared at it and then like left it like that would drive me crazy. Is that is that a trigger for you or am I just being a little OCD? Uh, So mixed bag. Because I have kiddos, I would be like, 
likely to call a kiddo to straighten it up and less likely to clean it up myself. But I can leave laundry on the floor. I I am capable of walking past it and being like, I'll get it later. But I think that comes from decades of being in a situation where the house is perpetually trying to stay clean and just can't. Like, just I'm always picking stuff up. So I think I'm on the other side of the mountain on that one. So for some period of time, sure, I I would have absolutely been trying and trying to keep everything cleaned up. But at this point, I'm like, I'm more likely to come by and and get some clean underwear out of the pile that fell on the floor. (laughs) I think I have it in me to walk by once, twice, maybe. The third time, if I walk by my even my own laundry, sometimes if like I'm getting changed and I'm in a hurry, like a like you know dirty clothes on the floor, rare that it would still be there the next like day or even like that night. I I will have scooped it up at some point. Stuff like that like weirdly bothers me, and I keep papers everywhere. I I I deal with a lot of papers in my in my other job and uh, piles. I I have to have neat piles, and when the cat comes running through like a like a crazy cat and like messes up my piles, like I'm like. Like, I have to go sit there and square out my corners and stuff. So weird weird stuff like that definitely bothers me. <laughs> it's a little OCD. But again, it's, it's a, a little, little like in summertime, especially like when kids are home from school and stuff like, no, the house is just always going to be a mess. Like, there's just always going to be dishes. I can try. I can try. I can keep trying. But, you know, I at the end of the day, when then when it's dark and everyone's asleep, that's when I go around and clean everything up. <laughs> you're, like, you're like a house elf at Hogwarts. Basically, yeah. That's the only time. Otherwise, I got to leave it. You know, but it's... It's also, and, and the way it presents in this show, though, it's just another aspect of the respect or lack of respect for things in the house. Yeah, they're two adults. I mean, that would drive me pretty crazy pretty fast. Right, there are no kids to hide behind. There are no kids to yeah. blame in this house for making a mess. Well, there is a there is a child, but there are no kids. <laughs> Which is important. I mean, what did you think about that line that they they don't have kids because it would pull focus from Kevin? I think it was I think it was a great reminder of our ongoing lesson of who Kevin is. There's two lines in this. There's can't have kids because it pulls focus from Kevin and also can't have dog because I refuse to have anything cuter than me in this house. Those are both really revelatory things about who Kevin is. This is one of my themes that I'm going to be stumping the entire series. Beyond just being immature, it's almost a little disturbing that he thinks that way. Yeah, it's insecure to the nth degree. Where it almost crosses over into like abusive behavior to enforce it because he means it. He abandons the dog. He gives the dog away when it doesn't serve his purpose in this episode yeah that, he only got it as a commodity and didn't respect it as like a living thing and gave it away and gave it away knowing how much she wanted it all of that all of that together i think is so pathological about who kevin is and, and reveals so much about his pathological tendencies agreed i was thrown Let, let's talk about the the thing that gets allison going in this episode and really gives her a pep in her step she takes the bill belichick for a hoodie she kicks the frame she steals it essentially opens it in an alley kicks the frame in and wears the hoodie did you notice uh, a marked change in her personality from that point on in the episode well first of all i was shocked that she did it wow that would take a lot of guts there's a lot of women who would do a lot of different things with that maybe go sell it somewhere maybe throw it in the trash in some alley, that type of thing. Kicking in the glass and wearing it around was like, I I didn't see that coming. That act of defiance bolstered her in a way that we've yet to see her in the series. Now, granted, we're only one episode and like five minutes in to this right, one, right. but it was the most 
full, most confident version of herself that we've seen. Not from the fact that she's wearing this hoodie, which is atrocious. It looked like a poncho on her. But would you be so bold? Would you actually wear it around like that? It's so bold, Mike. That's what I'm talking about. It is so bold, but I love that I, she did I it, though. I couldn't do it. I would, I would be too scared to do it. It's a sign of how far she's been pushed, right? We didn't really talk about it, but when she leaves the house in the first episode and she gives the double bird to the house. Yeah. You know, that's another act of defiance. This is like the progression of that, but jumping very many, many levels. I love the boldness of it, though, because it had such a tangible effect on her. It was her taking power back. It was her... It's her changing into her superhero costume like made with the skin of her dead enemy <laughs> yeah and, and i give credit to to annie murphy on this you see people when they're beaten down and they kind of walk with a hunch or their head is always down they're looking at the ground the second she puts on that hoodie her head is up her chest is out her shoulders are back she's 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 three inches taller she and she doesn't back down to anyone she doesn't back down to d when d tries you know giving yeah her like, what is with line. all this <laughs> Yeah, which is a whole conversation we definitely I want to have in in a second because I want to play that scene because that's 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 a scene that has to be talked about. But let's get to the library. I think the librarian, upon hearing Allison's book idea, asks a question that I think a lot of people who don't identify or can't empathize or sympathize with Allison's situation will be asking. Let's listen to this. It's about a woman who's sad. She's very sad. She just wasted the last 10 years of her life on this terrible marriage. Very pathetic. It's very depressing in the beginning. But, um, but then one day, she realizes what she wants, truly. And she has this brilliant plan. She keeps playing the perfect housewife. But in the meantime... Affair with her neighbor. What? No. She decides to kill her husband. Why wouldn't she just leave? Leave? Like it's easy? Like you just let her take the $194 she has and buy a bus ticket to Jersey? No. What would you do, sleep on the street? I'd find her anyway. And maybe she doesn't want to leave. Maybe this isn't about leaving at all. Maybe she wants him dead and he deserves it. How is that romantic? It's aspirational. Now, there's a lot there, and the aspir- there. it's aspirational is very funny at the end. But is that a fair question for that librarian to ask? And and by extension, ask Allison, like, why don't you just leave? And and is is Allison's response, is that her making excuse, or is that a legitimate uh, defense to why you can't leave? It is a perfect setup to get rid of the questions that the audience is going to be asking right away. The setup of having the librarian just go ahead and ask those questions, just get it out of there. So the whole idea of why don't you just leave? Why doesn't the, the wife just leave? Perfect. And and a lot of people don't really realize because it isn't ever really thought through. Like, well, where would she live? And where would she get money? And how would this all work out? And hopefully some of the stuff we're going to find out a little like, where's Allison's family and you know where's there more people in her life now they a little bit with Aunt D we know that well she has family but they all fall on the side of Kevin so it's not like she has this support system that sees it for what it is you know she's stuck in the situation every woman that i know this is the whole problem is that if they wanted to leave they they never did have their own savings account or their own checking account they never had a job that had enough money in it that they could really move and do something and even if they did 
I guess it's that secondary portion of like, it isn't about leaving. Why should she have to leave her house? Why should she have to leave everything? Which is a common question whenever, oh, so many times, it really changed my my POV on this when um, I, I saw something on Facebook once and it was like, how come every single time you hear of an abusive situation, someone says, why doesn't she leave? Why don't people ever ask, why would he treat someone that way? And why is that okay? Everyone expects her to do something about this and to get out of the situation. This clip brings it up perfectly. And I'm glad, again, this is Allison. She's wearing her armor. She's wearing, you know, this hoodie, which is giving her the ability to stand up for herself and 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 fight back. One, she makes a logical argument. And I like that she's using specifics, which are clearly being pulled from her own life. I mean, she she was at like $194 in the bank account. Yeah. You know, like yep. that's not just a number, right? That's obviously Alan, what Allison has in the bank that she can access right now. In And going to Jersey. And, and so one, there's a logistical thing there, like where would I go? Am I sleep on the street? And then two, she sits there and for a second she thinks about it. And she's like, and also, like, why should I leave? Like, it's not about leaving. It's about this son of a bitch deserves what's what's coming to him. There, there's always these little clips that I think help really focus what the show is talking about and where the f- show wants you to be looking and paying attention to. And I think this is definitely one of them. It's very smart because the, you could get into like the end of a season and people just say, well, I don't get why she just didn't leave in the first place. And it's like, you know what? She answered that. She answered that in the second episode. When she discovers the guy's OD'd and in the library, which what a sad place to die. She can't believe that he overdosed. And she says, you know, he's wearing a Patagonia vest. You know, he's got the money to shop at REI and he overdosed. It reminded me of something you said about how Allison identifies people by like their roles and by their status and by their class. The, the idea like her perfect life is in like Amherst gates and living in like the Donna Reed kitchen and outfit kind of thing. This is another example of Allison sees people this way. The idea that this guy had money, why would he overdose? Like that doesn't make like what problems could he have had or how bad could his life have been if he could afford a Patagonia vest that he would, you know, overdose on Oxy. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was actually kind of revelatory about who Allison is and how Allison approaches the world and how Allison sees people. It's interesting that she thinks I'm the only one out here who is living a life that isn't reality or I'm living a life that I don't feel fits me. And she isn't applying it to anyone else. She's underestimating what everyone else's lives are like. Is it because she doesn't see it or is it because she's just sheltered that she hasn't had the experience? I don't know. She's 35. I don't know. She's 35, but she spent the last 10 years. Think about how formative your 25 to 35 years were in knowing the world and you know, the metaphor of not having a car, of being denied access to a car, you could extend that her world extends to as far as she can walk. And how far does that give her exposure wise? Well, and I'll go further than that with that idea, because I think that it was probably a pretty big shock to most people that she was having to go to the library to access the internet. 
do they have a computer in their house? And I know some people can say, well, maybe she doesn't want to have it, you know, that search history on her computer or that type of thing. And maybe that's all it is. But it kind of seemed like she had no idea how to use a computer. Right. And had no idea that there'd be things like firewalls. And I would say that, yeah, sheltered for sure. I mean, you could use uglier words <laughs> um, than sheltered, but they're, they are definitely layering on how many things that she's just missed about what's going on. Especially when you take into account that her husband is a cable guy who's just now been promoted to laying fiber optic cable, yet. I think your take is right. I mean, they clearly have like a video game system, like some kind of modern video game system, but they don't have basic internet access. It doesn't, kind of thing. she doesn't seem to it. I haven't, have you seen, I mean, we've seen her cell phone, right? Cause she's got that, uh, the love of my life, I, which I guess gives her some access to the world at some level of smartphone. But, but here's the other thing on that. The love of my life in the, in her phone says to me that while yes, she uses that phone, that phone is monitored. Yes. Someone else has been in her phone to label himself as that. Yes. And put himself into that phone. And so yes, she has access to that phone, but she can't just like freely do whatever she wants on it. You know, she didn't, put that song in there she didn't do those things so she is probably not very tech savvy but additionally kevin would definitely think that that was his phone to look at anytime he wanted and and probably checks it on the regular like i like, would think so and yeah. and without even thinking about what he's doing he's just like it's time for me to check to see what the little woman's been up to kind of thing because I don't that's even know if it's that it's just that nothing's allison's you know everything's his so he can pick it up and do whatever he wants with it and if people are thinking or asking themselves where where are they coming up with that Kevin put that name into her phone it says the love of your life not the love of my life so right. if I entered in a contact and I was so inclined to write that I would say the love of my life Kevin is talking to Allison through the contact in her in her phone so just a little thing that we didn't talk about last episode we have the Patagonia vest man offering up also this whole idea of how she could find out about drugs and an overdose and that this can happen every day. If we didn't have that moment, she wouldn't have the, the jumping off point here, leading her to Patty. There was a lot of discussion in the Facebook group about Allison and Patty. And I think it was a good discussion in our first episode, this idea of does Patty owe loyalty to Allison? Just, you know, solidarity, womanhood kind of thing. No, right? No one owes anyone anything. But I was thinking about this when we were recording the last Handmaid's Tale episode, this idea of like Fred doesn't understand his relationship with women. Allison does not understand her relationship with Patty. There is this great clip where Allison is surprised that Patty is willingly going along with this war against the neighbors is going to go find out fireworks. Listen to this clip right here. You actually going to help him with that? Yeah. Oh, what? No, nothing. I just thought that we were uh... we. I never really thought of us as a we. Yeah, right. My mistake. So why the hell you tell me about the money then? About Kevin? I called the bank and you were right, the money's gone. You blew up my life, was that just for fun? No. I felt sorry for you. OK. 
convincing yourself all your dreams are going to come true. That you were destined for something bigger than this. That you were going to be happy. It was hard to watch. I'm bad with cringe comedy. Okay. So, I'm an idiot for wanting something. And you're fine with hitting your head looking for the Roman candles for the rest of your life? Yes. You felt sorry for me. That's brutal. Not only I never thought of us as a we, but then to go on to say I pitied you, I kind of found you pathetic. Patty is is harsh. I mean, she's she is. just no filter. I, she would never talk to Neil or Kevin this way. Not like that. Not so brutally honest. It's 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 kind of shocking how she treats her in in these kinds of scenes. I was surprised again, you know, because Allison has been painted so far as just being, you know, this very go along to get along girl. And so when, you know, as soon as she says my mistake, that's our, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that like all, all of us do. And I didn't think she would push it further. I didn't think she would question Patty's existence, give her like the, yeah, what about you? To have the Belichick hoodie happen and her like question Patty, it's picking up speed quickly how Allison's changing because these are, these, she's questioning this relationship that they've obviously had for a very long time. And, and it's, it's all happening all at once she then again calls out patty in the episode when she makes the raisin cookies the oatmeal raisin cookies and the guys leave and it switches to the to the single cam you know drama lighting allison calls patty on her bullshit at least i'm not at least i'm not sitting here pretending to not like things that i like as because patty grabs a cookie as soon as the guys are gone because she actually likes oatmeal raisin cookies allison not taking patty's shit you know anymore and i kind of i like that I, I i like seeing her like you can literally see her spine growing and hardening uh in this episode and that raisin cookie seems so important for us as an audience because it's it's one of the it's the first time i believe we see the, that the kitchen gets gritty, the lighting changes. It's a single cam situation with Patty in it. And it's like, wait a minute, Patty's on her side? Like, oh, wow. Okay. All right. We're going to find out more about Patty. This is uh, more rules about how to watch the show. We saw Patty and Allison outside together and, and not in the sitcom setting, but you're right. This was the first transition from the sitcom setting in staying in the same place, not changing rooms into the single camera setting. And Patty's still there. So again, just reinforcing this idea that Patty is not a sitcom character in this show. You know, that that is Neil and that is Kevin and that is Pete the dad. Are we going to see more people be able to join Allison's single cam world? Because I wonder if it'll end up just being Kevin because this the concept that it goes along gender lines will make me sad. I hope it doesn't. I hope it does turn out that maybe Pete does end up in the drama side every once in a while because the drama side just means to me, at least at this point, and I'll ask you what it means to you, but I have other thoughts in my mind. I have other things going on with me than the than the singular face you see me in the jokey sitcom world. That's all that it means. So it doesn't have to mean that you're on Team Allison. It doesn't have to mean you live in Allison's world. All it means to me is I have layers. I have other things going on. And it would seem odd if it only went on gender lines. I think it represents the complexity of life, the good, the bad. You know, there 
is some humor and there is some drama and and all the things in between that life represents in the single cam settings. I I, I think it's going to always be Kevin and it's always going to be Neil. I don't know if it, if it changes with Pete the dad, it's going to be some kind of like health related thing is my guess. I agree with you. Health that definitely, definitely felt like that was in there. But it's not only on gender lines, though, at this point, we know, right? Because there is a guy in Allison's life besides Marcus the Mechanic where she has interior settings with and it's not in a sitcom, sitcom format. Very true. I'm so excited we got more Sam time. Who is reminding Allison that she is not a perfect human being. This surprised me too. Again, being in the in the, the uh, shoes of the audience, Sam really is somebody who is willing to call her out. And I'm so glad you included a clip about that. I did. Let's play right here. I just don't know when I got so isolated from everyone. Wish you'd been here for the last 10 years. I mean, I'm not sure that would have actually helped. Why? People who think they're cut off from everyone are actually often walling themselves off from the world. Okay, can we not? Because I've already turned down therapy once this week, so... No, yeah, sure. I'm just saying... When you talk about wishing I'd been here, you're the one who pulled away. I pulled away. <laughs> okay, I mean, you were gone way before I got married, okay? How are we talking about this? I just wanted someone to talk with. Did you, though? Because from where I'm sitting, you wanted someone to listen and nod and agree with you. Mm. <laughs> let's say it's true and you know knowing what we know about allison so far th- does there feel like there's some kind of shred of truth here or is it more about the consequences of life and the decisions that we make and how we drift a- we drift apart and to and apart from people throughout our lives sam again like the librarian is playing such the the audience role the voice and and saying like okay you know allison are you so perfect you know what what role did you play in your own life here allison is so defensive and so quick to shut it down i I was actually again i feel like i'm saying i was surprised i was surprised at her response i i thought that maybe because she had made these other strides, she had, you know, put on the hoodie and she had questioned Patty and all this kind of stuff. I thought that she was more open right now, but she's actually not. She's actually super defensive and has no interest in being questioned about where she falls into this whole thing. She just wants to be able to express her victim story right now. She doesn't want any self-reflection on herself. Which is fascinating. Well, yes, but also not really surprising, though. You know, if she's come out of this cocoon where she realizes she put up with all of this low-key, been complicit in this or just gone along to get along, like you said, for 10 years, thinking that there was going to be some pot of gold life at the end of this weird rainbow, and now realizing that that's not true, and so now she has to start making alternative plans. It makes sense to me that she's not going to be in a place where she wants to self-reflect on the mistakes that she may or may not have made over time. Right now, she's just looking for people to be like, yeah, damn girl, you got to go get it, you know? Because she's not getting that from anywhere. So she thinks that she can maybe get it from Sam 
Sam. You know, there's an interesting reveal here why she's drawn to Sam, what the allure for Sam is to her, is that he knows her from the, you know, quote unquote, before times. Yes, and I want to know the before times so badly. I mean, when he says, I used to like mixing drinks for you, there's a, there's an immediately this whole sexual tension thing between the two of them, but, you know, this love this thing going on here that's kind of hanging over the two of them. But that quickly gets moved out of the way when Sam is like, yeah, by the way, you know, you ruined whatever we might have had or might not have had. Not me. She's not ready to listen to any of that. Her lack of awareness about other people and, and their points of view and what she looks like to them continues to be like, okay, all right, Allison. Okay, you really don't understand. And that that includes the doctor's office visit. When she thinks that she's just going to be so easy for her to just tell him and, and the doctor sees through it in one second. You know, they all know what she's doing. Everyone, the nurse, everyone. And you're like, Allison, not that it was a bad idea to start with thinking, oh, well, I'm I'm just like a cute, sweet looking lady. I'm nobody's going to suspect me. First of all, cute, sweet ladies ask for drugs, too. The wives don't ask for drugs in her world the same way people who wear who shop at REI don't ask for drugs. Right. In her own mind. But that's not her own world. No. And that's fascinating. Fascinating. There's a lot there with the doctor. But from her, the way her end of the doctor's visit and how she's being with Sam. And honestly, you can you can even expand this out that she walks around with the stains on the hoodie vest, on the hoodie. The fact that she goes into the makeup store and her mouth is covered in munchkins. Listen, I wouldn't say I'm a slob, but I eat a lot of munchkins. I've been inspired by the show to eat munchkins. I have powdered food. I don't walk into stores with my face covered in schmutz. I take a second and I wipe my mouth and my face. Allison doesn't really think about her place in the world and what she looks like to people. So she's always being caught off guard when they call her on it. When the makeup bitches comment on the fact that she's wearing a lovely shade already. And she's like, oh, I got powder on my lips. When Dee calls her out for the stains on the hoodie, she didn't realize she had them. When the doctor sees through her not subtle at all plea for drugs. All of this flusters her because she is just oblivious to how she presents to the world. It, it seems that way because she thinks it's so calculated the way that she speaks with Kevin that she thinks everyone else also doesn't see what's going on. I think there's an aspect of it that she knows how to work Kevin, right? She even says that to Patty last in the last episode, which is maybe the plan here with the doctor. But I think there's another side to it, though, and I think that's the beauty of the show is there's – Allison isn't perfect and, and she has her flaws. Like she's always working. She can work Kevin. So she thinks she can work the doctor in the same way. And the doctor is smarter than Kevin. There's this invisible factor too, where she could show up in a trash bag and maybe Kevin doesn't notice until Kevin wants to notice. So she has learned that she, or thinks that she is invisible everywhere. So she can walk around covered with munchkin powder on her face or holes or stains on her clothes. Other people do notice you, Allison. Maybe Kevin doesn't, maybe Neil doesn't and, and Patty and Pete, but other people in the world notice you. And that's a lesson she's going to have to learn because it's going to get her in trouble or get her attention that she doesn't want if she doesn't 
realize that fact and start living accordingly. Going back to that doctor's office scene, I think that it's it was an important shift in medical advice given from doctors to sitcom wives. Back in the day, you know, therapy meant drugs being put on some sort of calming totally chill out drugs was 100% what the doctor would have given you. The Donna Reeds of the world, that's exactly what was going on in the world. So I thought it was actually a fresh take to have it be a 2021. Actually, I think you need to talk to somebody and you need to find a friend and you need to like actually talk about your feelings versus medicate yourself. That was a complete twist rather than that old sitcom stuff. I agree. But also, does Kevin know? Kevin's a good guy. I bowl with Kevin. You know, we should call Kevin. I'll call him with you. Do you have a book club, little woman? That that whole misogynistic angle of it really turned me off. And it was part of this, the way D talks about Kevin, these third parties who are not in the family, the way they talk about Kevin as Allison needs to live her life according to what is good for Kevin and or Kevin needs to be involved in the inner workings. I agree. I thought it was good that he was he's saying you should get therapy. Fine. Every other aspect of the doctor, though, turned my stomach as this this old sitcom trope of the little woman needs her husband to be involved in her medical choices. But that part's real life, too. And that's exactly how we're talked to. Well, when I go to the doctor, they 100%, if, if anything's happening, they ask if my husband knows about everything. It, it's a whole thing. So so as much as it's like, oh, that's like so like gross and also it's the way women are spoken to. And I'm absolutely asked, if I go in and I say, hey, I think I'm having a problem with my thyroid. And they say, have you ever thought to have a, to, to do a diet of, of any sort? And you're like looking at them like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, oh my God, like, what are you talking about? Like, that is exactly the way we're spoken to. When he says, I'm sure Kevin would want to know. I just wanted to punch him in the face. Just it's wanted to punch him in the face. It's all super barfy, but that's just as realistic. So here's the thing. I'm not saying it's better. I was just saying it wasn't the same 1950s treatment. So I'm not saying that 2021 treatment is better. Right. I'm just saying he didn't medicate her with like tranquilizers a la Queen's Gambit. Everyone can watch the ant go, you know, be strung out constantly. It's not that, but... Yeah, I mean, it's still horrible. There's a joke on Facebook right now where where it all comes down to, they say, uh, you know, you can go in there with like every limb broken, you know, bleeding from your forehead, throwing up. And the doctor's like, what is the date of your last period? Right. Everything comes back to this, like, well, you're a woman. Let's just try to figure out if it's this is just a woman thing. That's the way we're talked to by everybody. And, and it's really messed up. And it takes time for people to say, you know what? I'm not okay with that. And let's like find that doctor that isn't going to speak to me that way. But freakish. When he says the whole thing about, do you have a book club and all that? I know it all sounds like talking down to her, but it's exactly what we're asked on the regular. Well, do you have a Bunko group that could fix this for you? The, <laughs> you're the, like, what? This world makes me so sad sometimes. Yeah. Book clubs are the salve. <laughs> well, well, that's just what women have. You know, men bowl and women have their book clubs. Do men even bowl? I mean, that's kind of a fake old thing. I don't know. Do it's the bowl? Honeymooners and Flintstones thing. Yeah, but do they now in 2021? Because book club is 2021. So what is 2021? I, maybe they would say, do you have like a video gaming online group that you can do? 
Because that would be more accurate than bullying. Kevin and I stream video games together. We play there video games go. online that together. Work, he's a, he's a good guy. There he, you go. He always revives me when I get killed in Call of Duty. <laughs> That's exactly right. There you go. <laughs> uh, we, we were remiss. You made me think of it. We were remiss to note that, of course, it took less than one episode because it was in last week's episode or it was in the first episode for Kevin to make a blood and menstruation joke. Oh God! I know, I know. I, you knew it was coming. It oh, it awesome. it happened in the first episode. So let's check that off the list of jokes. Um, I'm using lots of air quotes as I say jokes that men make in sitcoms. Let, let's get into the sitcom tropes from this episode because uh, we we've talked about it a bunch already. This idea that the sitcom wife is not allowed to let herself go because the sitcom husband deserves better. Specifically, I'm talking about this scene with D here. The things we do for marriage, as if that's a uh, as a that's a reason to defend everything. Allison, huh? are you giving up? Uh, how do you mean? What's going on here? Oh, uh... You look like 10 miles of bad highway. It's, uh, <laughs> actually my new favorite. Oh, it, it's got stains. I know. I like them. Okay. Thing is, this sweatshirt is actually the product. Good shape going on under all of that. Don't just let yourself go. It's not fair to Kev to just give up. Not fair to Kev. I should be wearing orthopedic shoes from Holly Lane for my planners, but Chuck says they make me look like a night nurse coming in to change his diaper. Mm. So what do I do? I go over to Target, I get myself nice flats, I deal with my arches on my own time. Okay. Well, you know you don't have to do that, right? Because that's... That's crazy. <laughs> no, honey. That's marriage. <laughs> now, this is a sitcom trope, but this is also a thing that happens in real life, too. This is a discussion. You and I have had this discussion. We know people who are told things like this. Why is this permitted in the real world, let, let alone being a shitty sitcom trope and a sitcom wife trope? I've got no good answers. I, the whole idea of um, the mortal sin a wife can do is to uh, give up. And so she's like, are you giving up like that's that is the worst thing you could do because you're never supposed to stop what's the word mike trying you always have to be trying deal with her arches on her own time i deal with I, my arches on my own time i don't even know what to think about that like the whole thing oh it's painful, but it's factual. You know, I'm sure people are plugging in their own words into the, the shoe story. No show ever talks about this. If this show has any kind of resonance and people are watching this show, hopefully they're sitting at home thinking, damn, that's horrible that Dee is saying this to Allison. And then, and then taking a beat and thinking to themselves, man, my mother-in-law used to say that to me also. Or my friend used to be told that all the time. And start thinking about why we allow this stuff to happen in our real lives. We're talking about both sides of the equation here. So also think, have you ever said, boy, you look like a night nurse in that outfit, and then realize that that person never wore that outfit again? 
and think about what did you just do? Does anyone stop and think about their comments to somebody else and realize that they are affecting their choices and that did they have any right to do that? And and was that really cruel to somebody else? Uh, Have you ever told anyone that you look like 10 miles of bad highway? Jesus Christ, that's a line. My ex-mother-in-law would frequently say to her daughters things along the lines of you need to do better for your husbands. Oh, wow. And and looks wise, career advice, all, all aspects of life were very much frequently said in a X deserves better. You should do better. And I used to make me turn my head every time I would hear it. It's scary. And then it's how much more scary is it that it was coming from a fellow woman? This is Deed. She's it. She is an older woman to her, a family member saying something like this to her. And again, like, what does that mean? What is it that we're doing to each other as people, as friends, as family members? There's a line in this episode earlier on. Patty says that Allison is protesting against the war escalating with the neighbors, uh, which I don't even want to talk about it because it because because (laughs) Kevin just drives me insane. And and some of it was funny. I like the idea of putting the knife through like the football. I thought that was actually kind of funny and stuff. Uh, Him walking around in the too small outfit that he was wearing like a fat prepubescent boy who no one's bothered to get the right size clothes for yet um <laughs> but really broke it but broke into their out. house to get no into the, the, the yeah. amount of crimes committed in this episode is insane well how about this the amount of boundary lines crossed kevin and his friends have no boundary lines nobody has any boundary lines i'm talking to allison too there's yeah, a lot true. of boundary lines being crossed the little the little lobster on the on the library screen is like can't cross this line like lines across everywhere uh, but yeah but uh, they're in the scene when Al- when allison dare say that maybe we shouldn't escalate a war with the brand new neighbors across the street patty turns to her it's patty turns to her and says whose side are you on you know and allison says i'm on sanity's side this other idea of d saying this to to allison and in our real lives women perpetuating these things on other women and it generation handing it down to another to the generation that comes after it i'm glad you said that you really didn't want to talk about the sitcom portion because again patty used as the audience says i don't do well with like cringy humor I thought that was so great because a lot of people are going to be saying that about this show. I can't stand the sitcom part. I don't do well with cringe humor. I don't do well with these moments that are so uncomfortably like, ew, in your own skin. That was directed to them like, hang in there, hang in there, you know? Just hang in here because you need to to appreciate what's happening in the rest of the story. You need to see these things. This is Allison's like real existence when she walks in that house and Kevin and his friends are home. If Allison came to Bev's diner and sat down in the booth with you and was like, yeah, Kevin hit all of our fucking furniture in Neil's garage and is filing an insurance claim for fraud so he can go get himself, you know, an even more expensive hoodie than the one I stole. You'd be like, I think you're exaggerating or that can't possibly be a thing that's happening. So you need to see these scenes to understand and appreciate <laughs> the absurdity of her the, life, the, the absurdity of her life, of, of all of their lives. These are grown adults. Thank God they don't have kids. I would be terrified for a child. Oh, they would be spoiled brat children. They'd be horrible. Kevin would have given it back. He would have put it back on someone's stoop like he does Bill the dog (laughs) with a leash. Because there's another trope here. This idea that the sitcom wife never gets to win. 
But in the end, Kevin is able to commit insurance fraud and is now going to get an even better hoodie than the one he never actually got that Allison took. And like the football, you can see Allison visibly deflate here at the end. All of the wind comes out of her sails because it was all for nothing. Kevin's getting what he wants again. He's getting what he wants. He I can't wins. Believe he has a dry erase board like that. <laughs> the game of life, 632 Kevin, three life. I'm so curious about those three. I want to know everything of the things that Kevin actually admits that life won. Like, so curious what those three are. Same. I had the same exact thought. I had the same exact <laughs> thought. D- does that frustrate you? Do you see that? Do, is that is that something that you see carry over in real life? This This feeling of no matter what I do... I just can't ever get ahead. You can't play a petty man's game and expect to win. All he has to say is, I don't really care about that. And you lose because the whole point of it is that you're, you know, he's, she's thinking that this is all wrapped up in the hoodie. And so if she just has the hoodie, she wins. But you're really trying to get the thing he wants. And all he has to do is say, I don't want that anymore. And it's wrecked. And the petty man will always say that because he's not going to admit he didn't, I mean, except for three times that he didn't win. The lesson then for Allison is that while this gave her a tiny jolt of confidence and a little feeling of empowerment in the long run, she's not going to be able to define her happiness or or define herself at all as an independent human trying to stick it to Kevin. That, that that's that's a losing never game. Gonna work. It's right. never going to work. One because the sh- the the way it's set up is you're never going to be allowed to win in the long run. Like Allison one and Kevin zero. You can't define your worth and yourself and the the value of you as a person as compared to someone else. That has to be a freestanding concept and Allison hasn't gotten that yet. But I am happy for at least she has a little taste of it. Maybe that will propel her in in the upcoming episodes to continue to explore that feeling. Maybe she's got a taste for it now, I hope. I think she's got a couple things propelling her forward. You know, while we talked about having the women work against each other, certainly the nurse giving her the business card was women helping each other. Just having this moment of like, oh my goodness, showing up at outside the salon building realizing what's going on there. First of all, Mike, I had a moment where I was like, she doesn't recognize the address of where Patty works. Again, like kind of shame on her in in terms of like, you don't pay attention to anybody else's life, do you? You don't know where Patty works? Maybe because we've never been a we. Interesting though, that Allison doesn't get her hair done by Patty, right? You would think a woman mm-hmm. who basically lives in your house and also cuts hair would be the place you would go for your hair? Like, where is she going to get her hair? I don't know. I don't I mean, know. I don't know. But it's super weird not to have any idea where she works. For sure. How shocked were you when it turned out to be Patty in the salon building? Oh, what a great twist. Because I really honestly didn't see it coming. Even even when she shows up outside and she has that really funny line where the woman sees the card. And that card must be like a known card around the town. And even then, Allison takes a second to be like, oh, it's drugs. And then like kind of laughs to herself. Even then, I was still surprised until she walked inside. And then I was like, oh shit, it's going to be Patty. Other than dropping that she worked at a salon, they had really held any reveal about Patty that way close to the vest. So I really I really appreciate it. I thought it was well done. I liked the the woman's response when, when she goes, oh, it's drugs. And the woman gives her that completely furrowed brow, like, how out of it are you? Right. All the side characters to me speak for the audience who are like, what is up with you, girl? You know, everyone questions her. Everyone gives her those crazy looks and I'm glad for it. 
we're seeing these experiences where it's like the first time that she's interacting with people. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see her learn how to get along in the world for whatever reason, whether it's because she now has this separation from Kevin, where she's finally kind of standing on her own two legs and, and is going to have to learn how to get by in the world on her own now or separate from Kevin and not be Allison and Kevin or Kevin and his wife, but be just Allison herself. We're watching Allison learn in real time, every aspect of how to be a human. Uh, you know, she's standing in front of a salon, a free a freestanding building with only one address on the awning for salon and is asking, where's the therapist office? <laughs> really? Whenever I see an address in a show, I always look it up to see if it's like a real place. This show filmed in Brockton, Massachusetts. That building that they set up as the salon, Caroline, was actually a vacant building that was dressed up to be the salon like exterior set. So that awning, the address, that's all actually fake. That's actually on Main Street in Brockton, Mass. So the address on Davis Avenue, I think it is. I did find it funny, though. The Deftos Liquors is a real place. That is real place and is on located on main street in brockton it's actually like across the street and up the block a little bit from where the salon set was used well that's cool so people people can start a kevin can fuck himself tour with a liquor store involved look around (laughs) sounds like fun go get a go get like an amb go get like a a miller high life 40 and uh, walk around brockton mass there you go Now, what does this mean, though, right? Because we we talked about how these first two episodes really introduced the show, ending with the twist that Patty is a drug dealer of sorts, the the matching shits at the end of the episode. Is this going to force Patty and Allison to become closer? Because now they have this shared thing of you deal drugs and you are trying to buy drugs. Uh, it, It will draw them together because this is what us women folk call mutual destruction. You now have enough dirt on one another that you're friends because if one squeals, the other squeals and both your lives are blown up. So you're in it now. <laughs> and nobody wanted to be in it with one another. Allison didn't want to be in it with Patty and Patty sure didn't want to be in it with Allison. So I feel like Allison might want to have been in it with Patty. It was just getting rebuffed. She doesn't want Patty to be in on killing Kevin. That's what I'm talking talking about but having a relationship so, with yeah, though, but that's not what this is no i guess These that's true. mutual destruction friendships are not friends that's true they, they are based on not wanting to ruin each other's lives that's what kept us from going to nuclear war with the soviet union for 40 that's years how this works it, it's frenemies right yeah now the story is gonna kind of kick into high gear I- it does feel that way it does feel like it picked up a bunch of momentum i'm interested to see where this goes you know i really thought this was going to be a show about Allison and her relationship with Kevin, it's starting to feel like it's more going to be maybe about Allison and her relationship with Patty as a stand in for the world and less about Kevin. I'm totally with that and would expand it to just Allison figuring out what it is to be an adult in the world and understanding what's going on around her. And Patty may be a sidekick for that or, like you said, maybe be a surrogate for that at times. Um, But she definitely needs to wise up about what's going on around her and that everybody has stuff going on in their lives. Like she was completely remiss in thinking, well, my life is so complicated and I have all these ideas, but nobody else does. Everybody else's it's just 
so simple. No, I mean, between Sam and Patty, Aunt D, and even the librarian, they're all like, uh, no, girl, there's like stuff going on. <laughs> Right. Right. We got a dead guy back there who OD'd. Yeah. Like his problems yeah. are currently worse the than EMT yours. EMT will tell you that uh, that the world is wilder than you think. I mean, the EMT's dealing with people getting liquefied going through the floor. Like we all got problems, yeah. Allison. We, we all, all got, got problems. problems. <laughs> I, I I tell you, one thing I hope that this show doesn't do now that they've established Sam as someone who is willing to speak truth to power and has his own kind of hurt feelings about whatever went down between him and Allison in the past. It's not just mooning over lost love like he he's got he's got an axe to grind with her i hope that stays and that he just doesn't flip the way some sitcoms would be right the next time you would see sam in a sitcom it would be like that didn't happen and he would be like oh i'll pour drinks for you i hope there i hope that tension remains and then we see it hopefully thaw because she grows up on the drama side of things, it's important that there's consequences because otherwise you are all stuck in the reset sitcom world that we don't want to be stuck in. So the drama side of the story has got to have consequences. Right. And you have to have character development and you need serialization in order for there to be character development. And so there have to be consequences. Like, guys, I really hope you enjoyed this conversation, but don't go anywhere. Stick around now because we have an excellent interview with Joshua Meltzer, who is the prop master for... Kevin can fuck himself. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in a second to wrap up the show. Joining us tonight on Kevin Can Podcast Himself is the show's property master, Joshua Meltzer. Josh has been keeping actors' hands full for almost 40 years, working on such iconic shows as Growing Pains, Who's the Boss, Night Court, Will and Grace, Dexter. Man, we got to know him here at Pod Clubhouse because he worked on one of our favorites, Nosferatu, for a couple of years. Uh, now Josh is back to talk all things Kevin Can Fuck Himself. Josh, thanks so much for coming back and talking with us. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for having me. And I got to say, after listening to the shows, I've worked on, I feel very tired. (laughs) (laughs) I had to take a breath in the middle just to keep going. So (laughs) That's funny. Well, those are some beloved shows, Josh. I feel like a lot of people understand that there's a property master, but few understand what they actually do. So can you enlighten our listeners? I was hoping they could enlighten me. Oh, no. uh, No, in in all honesty, uh, you used one of my favorite lines. I keep actors hands full. That's what I do. Everything the actor touches is a prop if they handle it. You know, uh, a chair uh, is a piece of set dressing until the actor picks it up and breaks it over somebody's head. It would still be a piece of set dressing because they would source it because of the look that it has to the set. But then I would get involved and it would become a prop also. And I would interact with a special effects person to make sure that the breakaway is made properly and all of that. So there's lots of crossover. But basically... Everything the actors handle is a prop. How did you actually get started in such a specific part of show business? It is a, a long and strange road. Uh, I was a child actor, and uh, my father was um, a writer back in the golden age of Hollywood. And when I turned 18, I was still going to uh, acting class and thought that I would be on Broadway in two years. And I know that he was probably scared, as parents get when their children have dreams that may not be fully realized. And he made a couple phone calls to some friends. And I ended up uh, at the back lot at Universal digging ditches and sweeping stages and working in the labor department. He gave me a fallback job. 
And I worked my way from the labor department to the prop department because I couldn't really see myself sweeping stages for the rest of my life. And um, when I got to the prop department and all of a sudden I was working around the actors and the director and interacting and being creative, I said, okay, well, this I can I can do until acting takes off. And I've been falling back for 45 years. <laughs> All right, that 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 big acting gig is going to come through any minute. I can oh feel yeah, it. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can feel it. <laughs> I was on the phone with your agent just yesterday. <laughs> so I know you were in New England because of Nosferatu, because I was a big fan of that show, and we covered that. We did the podcast uh, for that show. You seemed like you stayed. Uh, tell us how did you wind up staying uh, in in the Boston area just to, to work on Kevin Can Fuck Himself? How did that show opportunity come around for you? While I was doing um, Nosferatu, one of the executives at AMC was an old producer of mine from uh, years gone by, and he had gone out of producing and became a, a network executive. And he said, well, if you like it up here, we shot Nosferatu in, in Rhode Island, because if you like it up here, we're going to be doing a new show in Boston after the first of the year. And I wrapped Nosferatu like the second week of January of, of 2020. And I went home for a little bit and said hi to my family so they could remember what I looked like. <laughs> and I came back February 24th of 2020 and started Kevin. And March 13th, the world changed and we shut down. That's crazy. And uh, I sat in an apartment that I had just leased in Braintree, Massachusetts for 188 days. Not that Just you were counting of... or scratching the wall. <laughs> right. not, not that I had a calendar with red marks on every day with numbers. Like a cartoon, right? Like yep. you're making the little tally marks. Yep. <laughs> every day, faintly from Josh's apartment, you could hear, nobody <laughs> knows, you know, something like that. Singing the blues. Oh Your harmonic I mean, skills have never been sharper. So Never been sharper. I embraced it, you know, after, I mean, I really, I truly learned how to meditate. And I did lots and lots of uh, introspection and writing, I actually ended up really enjoying the time. But it was still 188 days <laughs> waiting for the world to write itself. I think people realize that COVID affected the TV industry, but for all that you hear about it, and, and Caroline and I, I mean, we do TV, we cover TV, you know, kind of as a living yeah, with Pod Clubhouse. I don't know that the everyman kind of knows the specific experiences of people working on TV or not working on TV through the last year. If we could stay here for a little bit, talk a little bit about just what it feels like when you realize you're not going to have a job for an unknown amount of time. When do you start thinking? Well, maybe they maybe AMC scraps this show, which happened to a bunch of shows. They were just starting production or not yet in production, and they never came because they weren't worth the cost. What was it like? And what was it like going back to work under the protocols? Working in television or any part of show business, really, and I don't think it really matters what you do. You know, I often refer to what we do behind the scenes. We're just carnies with good health benefits. You know, we uh, Caroline, Car Caroline has a trigger for carnies. So you're I do. I always say the same thing. Small hands smell like cabbage. Those my carnies. My mom was a carny. She she ran the uh, the duck pond. She ran the duck. I'm not lying. I know, she, it just makes me laugh every she, time you say that to people out loud. It just makes she me ran laugh. the little duck pond when she was a teenager, and so she she enlightened me that the winter's not always in there. And I was like, oh my god. 
yeah. so yeah <laughs> no i mean when when you work in this industry i mean when, especially when we're working on on a location on a local location whether wherever it is and you you have the grip truck and the electric truck and the prop trailer and all the dressing rooms and the portable bathrooms and the, and they say okay that's a wrap and all of a sudden you see the circus leave and the next morning it's somebody it's somewhere else and we pitch our tent for the day and we do our show we're just carnies that's all we are you always live i mean i've always lived in the back of my mind and certain people who who know me very well but aren't in the industry have always not truly understood what's in the back of your mind all the time about is this show going to get canceled is this show going to get a second season you know uh, when this show's over is there another job waiting for me you know how hard do i have to look for it i was doing a show many many years ago that was number 3 in the ratings this is before cable and everything else. So it was just the Nielsen ratings for the four broadcast networks. And we were number three and we got canceled Whoa. in the That's middle of the season, crazy. in the middle of the season. I came into work one day, we'd shot like six episodes. We had an order for 13. We knew we were going to get 22 because we were number three and we came in and they said, go home. Show's been canceled. And it was all politics. It was all uh-huh. politics. It was producers and network and disagreements and everything else. And the network pulled the uh, the card and said, sorry, it's our network. Cancel the show That's crazy. and take the loss. So, wow. yeah, I mean, you never know. And yes, there was a huge, huge worry in the back of my mind as I tried to meditate that <laughs> how long is AMC going to stick with this? brand new show which is high concept never really been done and in my own mind i'm saying well annie murphy just won an emmy (laughs) right right you know they're gonna stay with this yeah we got some momentum here with her right she's keeping the door propped open literally with her emmy (laughs) exactly you know i mean i honestly feel that if it was a cast, maybe with names, but nothing that's truly bankable right now to get some buzz around, we may not have come back. Wow. Well, I'm glad you touched on the idea that Kevin Can Fuck Himself is pretty different from other shows that our audience has seen, especially maybe different ones from Nosferatu or Dexter that you've worked on. Was there a difference in creating the props for Kevin? Can you compare it a little bit from creating you know, props for some of the other shows? There is a difference. It's very minute. And if I do my job well, kind of like going to a Broadway show. And if you notice the lighting design, he didn't do his job right. It should be seamless. It should just integrate into the show. If I do my job right, you don't notice that the props in the sitcom part of Kevin look a little different than the single camera props in Kevin. Because, well, let's face it, I'm old. Um <laughs> experienced, uh, seasoned. You're seasoned, seasoned. Josh. I'm seasoned. You're seasoned, Josh. I'm seasoned. I'm one of the few prop masters left who goes back and forth. I can do single camera, and I've got a, a list of single camera credits, and then I have years and years and years of multi-camera or sitcom credits. And the props, besides the process being completely different, the props are subtly different. We use brighter colors in sitcoms. We try to never use black in a sitcom. Try to never use black as a as a prop. So anything that in real life would be black, we try to find some other shade to make whatever that prop should be. Because black is not funny. It's one of the rules of comedy. Black is not funny. Oh, you know, you know. Good to know. Th- th- things in threes. <laughs> things in threes are funny. Hard consonants are funny. 
and then there's prop rules of comedy, like black is not funny. So yeah, there, there were there were some differences, but hopefully it's subtle and nobody will will know except whatever I give away here. Oh, I'm going to be staring at it. Are you kidding me, Josh? <laughs> I'm going to be like, get out my little magnifying glass and like peeping on everything just because of the, like you said, the lighting difference. But is there more between like when we go from the sitcom and we're walking into the kitchen and, you know, all of a sudden it, it does look so different? Are you doing anything to those props? Are you like dingying them up? Are you doing anything to like create that different look? Or is it the lighting and the and the single cam? No, it, it's a little bit of both. You know, sitcom is is a sitcom. It's it's not a world of reality. So single camera props, when Allison is in that mindset, like Allison herself, it's gritty. It's real. You know, so yeah, they those props are dirtier. You know, it is more blue collar, Worcester, dirty snow in the background, and it's gritty. Whereas when we're inside the house and it's a sitcom and it's bright and uh, the lighting is very uh, one-dimensional and the props are, are brighter, they're more colorful, they're fun because that's sitcom. You know, we, we said it before, but it's a show really like you've never seen before and, and we're constantly and we've watched all the we've watched the first four episodes multiple times at this part, you know, because because we're podcasting about now, it. Now you're just rubbing. Now you're just rubbing <laughs> it in that you've seen them. He really is, isn't I he? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I, I mean, Josh, I text you every time I finish it. I like, you know, I, I just watched it again. Ha ha ha. Uh, I make the neener neener, uh, you know, sign. Neener uh, neener. But yeah, no, it's impressive, though. The, what? Enough with the spoilers. <laughs> uh, the yeah, the uh, the just the look and the whole production design. You know, we we produce a show here at Pod Clubhouse, decorating the set from Hollywood to your home with Beth Kushnick, who is a set decorator. She's worked on a host of movies and shows, the you know Good Fight, Good Wife, those shows. And one thing she always talks about, and Caroline's actually her co-host on that show, is the frequent interaction with the various parts of the production team and and how the prop department interacts with the other departments, such as makeup and costume and set. Design. And you touched on this a little bit, but tell us about more of the separation of duties. Like, when does the Bill Belichick hoodie become wardrobe versus a prop? Like, how is that? How does that work? Well, I mean, that's a that's a perfect example because I, I generally let wherever the, the that item is going to be most prevalent, I let them take the lead. So in this case, the Bill Belichick hoodie, Allison actually ends up wearing it. So right. if she's going to wear it, it's a piece of costume. And so it has to look right for the actress. So I let costumes take the lead with that and just let them know that whenever they figure out, after fittings and discussions with producers and directors, whenever they figure out what it is, I need six of them. And I need them to this size because they're a different size than the one that Allison actually wears. Right. So they can fit in the frames. It looks like a poncho on her, too. It's really funny right. the way she wears it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So they had – I have no idea how many different hoodies – costumes actually went through i'm sure it was dozens and dozens and dozens to find the one that we actually settled on and then all of those were tailored for the way they wanted them to look on annie and then they specially tailored mine so they would fit and fold properly and everything else inside the frames and i have to remember that nobody except you mike has seen the show so um <laughs> Uh, I don't want to give away spoilers because uh, last time I did, I did your podcast. Everything had already aired. Uh, well, that's true. That's it, true. It will have by the time this publishes. Yes, so you're good. The, the you're Bill safe. Belichick okay. hoodie episode. You are safe with that one because that will be <laughs> yes. out. Yes, yes, yes. So. Okay, good. 
Well, I was going to ask you because there is a scene there where she kicks the frame, uh, you know, to get to the hoodie. And it makes such a satisfying kind of glass noise, which I'm sure is some kind of foley. But it, as a prop master, is it fun to make things that you know are going to get destroyed and get kicked around and stuff? Is that like bring you some kind of like cathartic joy? Duh. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't like like things that break? And we did a lot of breakaways on this show. Yeah. I probably went through more breakaways in one season of Kevin than I did in uh, in eight season on eight seasons of Dexter. Wow, that's interesting. But I went through much more blood on Dexter. I was going to say so. a lot less blood. I mean, some blood, but a lot <laughs> less there's some, blood. There's some blood. Yeah, there's some blood. Breakaways are something that I work hand in hand with. Depending on what the gag is, uh, I, I work hand in hand with maybe the special effects department depending on what it is, always work hand in hand with the stunt coordinator because safety is the number one thing on on the list always for for everybody, not just the actress or the actor. It's it's the crew, too. We don't want things flying all over the place and hitting a camera person or somebody else who's close to the set when we're doing the gag. Right. It's not like Annie Murphy's wearing safety goggles on set when she breaks something, you know, so you have to be aware of that. No, no. I mean... In an insert shot, if it's just the insert of the picture frame and her foot going through the frame, that's specifically something that we did. But I've done things like that where it's not even the actress that is a stuntman with the right shoe on. Now, we didn't do that. We, that actually was Andy doing all of that stuff. But somebody getting hit on the back shoulder with a breakaway as they turn to walk out of a room. Well, the actor, I guarantee you, is not throwing that breakaway. Right. That's right. usually the prop master. And I've done that a few times, you know, make sure the football goes through the window or the baseball goes through the window or the breakaway hits the actor on the shoulder, not on the back of the head. I mean, there are some times that it's it's pretty particular. That's a whole different skill set I didn't think about for a property master. They're like, can you throw a football through a window? (laughs) I didn't think about that that one. (laughs) And it's not just throw it through a window. It's throw it through a window at a certain distance. Yeah. And and a certain posture, because you've got to be, depending on where the football has to come from, there are times that you're standing on a ladder over the camera, kind of hunched over while you're throwing something. So it's not like you're just standing there throwing something. It's, right. it's it, it, it gets tricky. So You are a carny. You're like a contortionist. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is there one prop from Kevin Can Fuck Himself that stands out as having been maybe particularly hard to make or one that you're really proud of? Honestly, I'm so wrapped up in the show I'm doing now. I'm trying to remember the Kevin props. The Belichick hoodie was fun. There's a, a scene later in the show. I'm trying to think of how to phrase this as I'm talking without giving away any. Because <laughs> um, uh, the second half of the season. Uh, there's a restaurant scene that was very challenging. Uh, I like your tippy toeing. Yeah, <laughs> it I can make, hear your tippy toes. Yeah, it, it, it does. It doesn't make for great podcasts, but yeah, I am tippy toeing. That's uh, we're going okay. to put in Fred Flintstone tinkle noises, like exactly. You asked earlier about what it was like to work on a show during COVID. And I give great credit to Annie and Mary Hollis, um, or Hot Dog, as we called her on set. Um, And particularly uh, Valerie and Craig, who are the showrunners and the creator. This set could have been absolute chaos. Coming back from a pandemic, everybody getting tested constant. I was tested eight times a week. Eight times every five days I was tested Lord, uh, between the nasal swabs and the rapid tests. Most of the, the time we were doing it, it was the uh, dead of winter. So the weather was not exactly ideal. 
And this was so much fun. It was so much fun to make this show because the people had the right attitude. And we just came in. And I think we all had a sense that we just wanted to get back to some sense of normal that we knew. But we were wearing masks all day long, all day long, you know, and glasses are fogging and, you know, all the things we all went through. But we're trying to work through it and not get too close to the actors because the actors don't have any PPE. The actors were wearing shields to a certain point and then they would take them off. Big shout out to my crew, Heidi and um, Allie and Laura, Toma and Abby who made it all possible prop-wise, with the exception of Heidi, who's also from Los Angeles, like myself. The rest of the crew is all locals, and they're some of the best local New England talent out there. They were just exceptional. But I'll tell you, the, the, the strangest thing about working in COVID is we finished our last scene before the holiday break, because we, we shut down for the holidays and came back to finish. And at the uh, the end of that day's work, outside of what we call the stage, which is actually in New England, a big warehouse that we convert, we went into the parking lot and we all kind of had a toast to each other, to the holidays and everything else. And we all stood in this huge, huge, socially distant circle and took down our masks to have a toast. And it was the first time since we went back to work in late August that I saw smiles. <laughs> Aww that I actually saw people's faces. There were people I don't even know what they look like because mm. they hadn't started before we shut down. That's you wild. can describe so, those eyes, though. So. It yeah. was so <laughs> bizarre. Yeah. And I remember standing in the circle and actually saying, that's what you look like. <laughs> and we and we all were doing it because all we saw was what we could see. So you would make up what the person looks like on the lower third of their face. Sometimes we were right on and sometimes we were way off. <laughs> my son just finished school last week or he just finished like the last like real days of school last week and there was like an open house and I went and I met his teachers and and he's been in the school for years but these were new teachers that I didn't know before and I realized it's been an entire school year nine months and and they were on campus the entire he goes to a small little private school and they were on campus the entire year and uh handled COVID really well and I have no idea what any of these people look like if yeah. not, their eyeballs are their only way I can tell them. I was like, that person wears that kind of mask and that's the color of their eyes. And that's how I realized that is the strangest thing. This will be a black hole year when I think back to when he was in like seventh grade. I have no idea what, what these people look like. It's insane. It's insane. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I actually there's a uh, on this new show I'm doing. Some of my Kevin crew took other opportunities locally. So I have different people working with me. I actually invited some of them to have lunch with me so that they would have to take their mask off so I'd actually know what they look like. Because otherwise, I wouldn't even know what my own crew looks like. They're like you um, with the purple mask. Yeah. <laughs> purple mask number two. Come over here. Exactly. I gotta, I need yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I know a lot of the states are opening up and stuff like that, but the film industry works under a special side letter about COVID and protocols that is expiring to the end of June. And there's lots of talk on sets about what's going to change and what's going to change and Personally, I don't think much is going to change at all for us because we still have actors who don't have PPE. Right. So as long as we don't have herd immunity and the most of the people vaccinated and you have actors who are standing there without PPE, we're going to be wearing masks on sets for a while. That's my feeling. Yeah, I mean, the insurance alone, I imagine. Yeah, exactly. Because the Screen Actors Guild is going to dictate this conversation. 
I realized listening to the, uh, you talk about working under COVID that I, I didn't ask a an essential question I should have done at the beginning. What's your process for starting a new show? Because, you know, the, the McRoberts house is not a real house with real furniture and real props inside of it. So at some point, you have to begin creating this world, all of these physical objects. How do you uh, start a new show? Like, what's your process for starting up a new show? Well, I'll, I'll speak to Kevin specifically because it's different for every show. In broad strokes, it's the same, but there's always specifics. So for Kevin, it always starts with what is the socioeconomic makeup of my characters? I start there. I try to sit down with my creator or my showrunners and say, what did you envision when you were writing these characters? Because that's my job. Right. Is not is not to go willy nilly and say, I think the character is this. It's to try to make the director's vision, the creator's vision, the showrunner's vision, the actor's vision to help bring the characters to life that they envision. Sometimes, depending on who I'm working with, I get a chance to give my two cents and kind of maybe take the character one way or the other a little bit. And, you know, oh, I hadn't thought about that. That's a good idea. You know, but my job is to really be in touch and in tune with all of them and to bring the characters to life. So I start with the social economic makeup of the family, of my characters, what town are they in? The show takes place in Worcester. So I'm trying to source lots of things that are specific to Worcester. So that when you're sitting in Kansas, you look and you see something different. But even more important, when you're sitting in Worcester and you're watching the show, you go, oh, yeah, I know that. And it makes you feel at home. And it, it completes the story. I mean, as, as soon opposed- as I saw the Dunkin' Donuts, I felt at home. I mean, every time Annie's like got a Dunkin' and like munchkins in her hand, I'm as a New Yorker, I, I feel at home. And especially- can, can I tell you, as a guy from L.A., you can trip over a Dunkin' Donuts out here. It is amazing yes. how many of it's them the there are. It's the home of Duncan. It's like the it's the mecca of of Duncan out there. So where where I was staying for my 188 days in Braintree, right around the corner is the training headquarters for Dunkin' Donuts. I drove by it every day to go to the set. God. Yes, they, they are everywhere here. It's the fucking they... dream, Josh. It's the goddamn dream. <laughs> it's where they pass yeah. out the little tiny mustaches. They learn their time to make the donuts. I I still wake up in the morning and no one understands me. I wake up in the morning and I'm like, it's time to make the donuts. I still do that. I still do that. Yeah, Dunkin' Donuts and a pizza. I can trip over pizzas out here. Yeah, I can pizza. trip over more pizzas in Massachusetts than I can when I'm in New York. <laughs> it's not as good, though. It's not as not good, as good no. Not it's a different pizza. Yeah, my New York pride is showing. Excuse me. I have to put yeah, that that's away. fine. It should. Uh, You know, so much of your job seems to be making the impossible possible and bringing the wildest dreams of the writers and the directors and the actors to life. What specific prop or show just generally challenged you the most in your career? Is there one that you think back and it still like wakes you up in in the middle of the night in a cold sweat? You know, a show like Dexter was challenging at times, but I got into a really great rhythm with that show because I became a forensic guy and I really knew more about forensics than I ever wanted to. Doing dinosaurs, I'm going way back, Mike, you were probably a child. Oh, uh, no, I, I remember. Not the mama. Come not on, the mama. Josh. I was, in, uh, I was in high school, I think, when dinosaurs was on. So, okay. Okay. Well, that was uh, uh, every prop was a challenge because every prop, everything those damn latex dinosaurs touched had to be designed and created. There was nothing in the real world that we knew 
except really strange produce that I would get for Fran from for Fran to take out of the bags. Nothing existed. Everything had to be imagined, designed, and created. And depending on if a puppet was touching it or one of our suit dinosaurs were touching it, it was either 122% scale or it was, I think it was 36% scale, but couldn't weigh more than like four ounces or something because it had to get oh. sewn into the puppet's hand. Oh, wow. But the, the show I'm doing right now is especially challenging because it's a period show. And period shows are their own animal I've done segments of shows that are period, but I've never done an entire series that is period. And so I'm doing the new Julia Child series for HBO Max, and it takes place in 1962. And trying to source on a daily and weekly basis all the different things that are needed and get them to Massachusetts on time is really a challenge because, you know, our entire infrastructure of, uh, of the Postal Service is a little compromised still. So things that should be overnight, not necessarily overnight. And let me tell you, it's fucking scary when the prop is needed for a Tuesday and you didn't find out about it till Friday and it's going to hopefully be on a plane on Monday to be there. It doesn't show up. What do you do? So yeah, that's a, that's that's my new challenge. It's just trying to recreate 1962 for a viewing audience. Do you like the research of doing that? Because I imagine that's a big aspect of doing a period show versus a, a contemporary show. Is that something I will that tell excites you. you, or is it home? I, I, I was I was excited about doing the research, but having never done an entire series, let alone a semi biographical series, you know, I would research what pipes looked like in 1930s for a scene I did somewhere or something. But now I'm actually reading about Julia Child and Paul Child and Massachusetts. And I am fascinated. Like, like most people, I thought Julia Child was this warbly voiced television cook. And I had no concept at all about the rest of her life was. And that's a whole other podcast. I'm not going to do it now, Mike. We'll, we'll have you back. We'll have you back. because <laughs> Josh and Julia. It is fascinating. I am, I am so fascinated with doing the research for this show because there's, I mean, I was 62. I was uh, four years old. So do the math. And I mean, I remember what certain things looked like as a child, but there have been certain things that I thought that must have been around in 1962. I just don't remember it. And no, it wasn't even invented yet. Oh, geez. And there are certain things that I thought that had to have been there. Nope. It's just, it's amazing. Like there was something invented, something uh, about in the script about a Sharpie. Right. And so every time I see anything like that, I go to Google and say, Sharpie history or Sharpie invented and found out that Sharpies weren't invented until 1963. Oh, geez. Oh, man. So it was a Marks a lot or some other felt tip pin of some sort. And you know, there are people out there checking that. Be like, <laughs> oh, yeah. This show is bullshit. Marky, yeah, Sharpies weren't even a thing. You know, you there, there, there are people, people out there. There are people with no lives. <laughs> it's true. Yes. It's true. Oh it's my true. gosh. It's very true. Well, pivoting from the most challenging okay. props, do you have a favorite prop of all of your projects? Something that all you just loved? Oh, I mean, what we call the kill knife on Dexter, because that's a pretty special thing. You know, it was a, a, a knife that a director came to me and wanted to do a shot looking over a body strapped to the table and wanted to see a knife go fully up to the hilt into the chest without doing visual effects and 
and without really killing somebody. So there's a built-in problem because knife, knife blades are usually much longer than handles. So most retractable knives up until that point, the knife would only retract so much. We right. couldn't actually take a knife and put it in all the way up to the hilt. Uh, without hurting somebody, right. um, and, and that and that owie would really be bad. Right. So, uh, I started just spitballing ideas and came up with two separate knives and worked with my director on where we could put a cut, an edit point, so that what the knife the audience sees Dexter picks up is this beautiful polished chrome knife that's shiny and tells the story and everything else. But at a certain edit point, we trade that knife out for a knife where Dexter's hand covers the handle of the knife. So we can now use a shorter blade that retracts fully into the handle. So when he plunges it into the chest for those 42 frames or whatever it is, it's a different knife. And then we cut back and Dexter's holding the big knife with some blood dripping off it. And through the joy of editing, we've told the story. I love TV so much. I know. I was going to say, I that's some satisfying of- problem solving there. Yeah. I love that. I'm happy for <laughs> you having figured that out. Like just listening to that makes like me a happy. a magician. Yeah. yeah it, I, I, it's true. I mean, I thought of it more as a magic trick than I did anything else. Well, when you get to go, then you see it. I, I imagine it has to be something like when, you know, David Copperfield ever went and watched one of his own shows. You know, it has to be like, man, I'm really fucking good. Like, you know, it, 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 it just has to be so satisfying. Like, because, where did that elephant go? Like, yeah. Uh, like, I don't know what happened to the Statue of Liberty. That's insane. Amazing. <laughs> I think Dexter stole it. Oh, my God. Uh, you know, we're, we're just about out of time, and you've been so good with uh, giving us so much time today. But I, I do want to take a little detour here. Uh, I know you've recently upped your side hustle woodworking business uh, out there in Boston. Uh, tell us a little bit about Zenwood Designs, what it is, why you do it. Uh, give, give us a little behind the scenes on Zenwood. Thank you very much. I mean, yeah, Zenwood, I mean, I actually have a, a, a real space for it now uh, in Massachusetts, I've got this this nice little shop that I'm putting together. And why I do it is because otherwise I would go insane thinking about props and what's needed the next day all day long. It's Zenwood because it's my happy place. You know, it's where I go to just let everything else fall away. Because if you don't have complete focus when you're doing woodwork, you're going to get hurt. So I can just completely focus on keeping all my fingers Unfortunately, because of the show I'm doing and all the research, I'm not having as much time to do work as I want to. But hopefully in the coming months, I will be able to get uh, an Instagram up. And it's, it's nothing to, to make a fortune or anything else. It's really more about my own therapy. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's wood therapy for me. Right. And I mean, yeah, I make, I make, I think, really pretty coasters and cutting boards and small other wooden decorative things, beautiful picture frames and recycled wood things. And But it's more about just having something for me to do outside of scouring the internet and prop houses for props. <laughs> well, speaking of that, we have to ask you, what are you watching this summer? If I could get AMC Plus, I'd be watching Kevin Can Fuck Himself. <laughs> <laughs> but instead, I get bad texts from Mike. Um, <laughs> It's they're complimentary. I say your, your prop work was really good in that episode that I just got to watch again. It's probably the worst question, and I would not be surprised if this gets edited out. Um, oh, no. 
I've worked in television for 45 years. I watch baseball and I watch the news. That's That's you're a big Dodgers guy, right? That's you're, you're, okay. You're you're uh, you're living among the Red Sox tribe, but you you're. A I Dodgers am living guy, among yeah. the Red Sox tribe, but the Red Sox, and there are going to be certain people who are going to hear this, who I know are going to go, "Oh, really? I never knew that about him." The Red Sox have always been my American League team, so it's not terrible, <laughs> except for my friends who are Yankee fans. So um, the Yankees, but suck. yeah, don't I'm, worry I'm, about it. The Yankees, yeah, suck. Uh, yeah no. we're, we're we're Mets fans here at Pod Clubhouse. So. Okay, well, well <laughs> in the in the New York office, we're I was Mets fans. Say the Houston office yes, is a little bit uh, yes. more skewed to Astros, yes. but okay. The the, 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 well, the, the New York office are Mets fans. <laughs> so. yeah, we 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 won't even go into the Astros if you're. A we don't need fan. to. I know. No. I, it's a whole thing this right now. Still hurts my heart. I yeah. know, I know. Uh, and uh, but yeah, I I, I do uh, I do wear uh, I do wear the Dodger blue, uh, and I even occasionally on set, and I, and and I I look at the uh, the stares I get. That's so funny. <laughs> That's so funny, Josh. Thank you uh, so much for coming on and talking to us about your work and talking about uh, Kevin can fuck himself. Uh, are you on the internet where people can find you or Zenwood, Facebook, internet, uh, Twitter, Instagram? Is there any place people can reach out if they want to follow you? Well, on uh, on Instagram, if you uh, if you want to see me, you can go to uh, JM Props, uh, and you can ask me all kinds of prop related questions there. And if you want to check out what I'm doing uh, with the woodwork, there's uh, at Zenwood Designs. Uh, just a quick thing, just to entice people. If you just a quick look here, there's a bloody deer head and some Dexter blood and <laughs> and and some really other fun stuff there. So definitely go uh, follow. I know, go follow Josh, uh, and uh, you can look at his career and ask him all sorts of questions on Instagram. My birthday is this summer, man. I'm excited. I want some Josh Meltzer coasters at least. I'm I'm okay. like very much wanting to purchase from Josh. So right. I'm excited about the Zenwood stuff. Love <laughs> it. Very good. Josh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Kevin can podcast himself, and we'll definitely have you back maybe for Julia whenever okay. that comes out. So. Well, thank you both very much. It's always a pleasure to spend some time with you guys. Take thank care, Josh. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Josh. Just want to give a big thank you to Josh for spending so much time. I, I feel like I could talk to him about his career and all the stuff that he's done and all the props he's put in the actor's hands for three, four or five hours easy. So I was really happy that he was willing to give us so much time and, and just chat so openly with us. Super glad to have him and hope to have more of the cast and crew on as we continue our journey with Kevin Can Fuck Himself. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Kevin Can Podcast Himself. You can get it at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be fantastic so that we don't have to break into your house and steal your Manchester United too small shirt. (laughs) Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.